Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. In today's episode, I am so excited to share my interview with Dr. Mary Barbera. Mary Barbera is a BCBA as well as a parent of a child with autism. She is the best-selling author of the book, The Verbal Behavior Approach, and she is very well known in the world of applied behavior analysis. She is a hugely valuable resource. Her perspective as a parent but also as a clinician, can be so helpful for parents, for teachers, for administrators or clinicians to apply all of these strategies into our classrooms or into our homes. In today's episode, she shares how she fell into the autism world, how she became a BCBA, and what the verbal behavior approach is. The verbal behavior approach is a little bit different than other parts of ABA, and she shares how it can be used in schools and in homes, and if you want to learn more and really become an expert at it, she has a lot of avenues that we will link in the show notes for you to learn more on these strategies. So let's jump right in. Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us on the Autism Helper podcast. 
Thanks for having me, Sasha. Your book, The Verbal Behavior Approach, is one of the first books that I recommend to a lot of teachers and parents because I really feel like it connects with a wide range of groups. For those that don't know you yet, can you tell a little bit about your journey from parent to behavior analyst? Sure. So um, I fell into the autism world, I say, in um, 1999 when my firstborn son, Lucas, was diagnosed with autism one day before his third birthday. But he started showing signs actually um, shortly after my second son, Spencer, was born. And my husband first mentioned the possibility of autism when Lucas was just 21 months old. And that's actually the first page of my book, The Verbal Behavior Approach, where I talk about my husband first mentioned it to me. I was like horrified. And I'm like, told him to, you know, I never, ever wanted to hear the word autism again, just like shut up and, you know, make it go away. And so he planted a seed and this is, you know, back in 1998. And, um, and then, you know, Lucas just continued to not make progress, not advance with his language. He always had a few words at the time. I had no idea how to get him to talk or he wasn't a real tantruming kid. He didn't have really any self-stim behavior back then. He just watched a lot of TV. He was a quiet kid. He went to typical preschool. And then they started saying like he wasn't really ready to move up to the next class and that, you know, the next class had a worse ratio of students to teachers and he was a summer baby. So I should hold him back. And, and they did allude to, they didn't say, I think he has autism or anything, but you know, is he getting therapy? Is he getting evaluated? And at the time he was getting speech therapy. And anyway, so he was diagnosed, uh, you know, because of my denial, like if we would have gotten on it at 21 months, you know, he probably would have been diagnosed with more mild autism. So that's a little, you know, bit of guilt is that, you know, I was in denial. I didn't want to hear it. So by the time we got there, you know, we thought, oh, if he gets diagnosed, it'll be very mild. And, and then the doctor said it was moderate to severe autism. And, and I had read Catherine Maurice's book, let me hear your voice. So I was like, well, what about recovery? You know, what about this intensive ABA? And he's like, well, you know, I've really only seen that with kids very mild. And, and then that was kind of like, I felt like, well, my God, my denial really, you know, hurt his chances. And, you know, you never have, I mean, I have no way to know if he'd be exactly the same. I mean, back then we really didn't know anything, you know? Um, so I don't know that I would have, he would have had a different trajectory, but, but, um, in the end he, he still has moderate severe autism despite, you know, 40 hours a week of intensive ABA that I managed to get. And, um, I went into like advocacy mode right away. And I was a master's prepared nurse at the time. My husband's a physician. And so we came at it from a medical model. Um, okay. His autism, what do you do? And it's like, oh, well, you know, let me hear your voice. The best treatment is applied behavior analysis, which isn't, it's kind of like an educational, procedure or uh, technique, but, you know, education doesn't want to pay for it. 
And then at the time, I mean, 1999, insurance wasn't paying it. Although in Pennsylvania, where I live, there was a loophole found by another autism parent who managed to get medical assistance to pay for ABA treatment, regardless of parent income. So all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I have a three-year-old with moderate severe autism. Okay, now you have to you have to apply for medical assistance. I'm like, well, wait, wait a second, I have. We have insurance. No, you have to apply for medical assistance. It's like, okay, well, I don't really want to. Well, you have to. Otherwise, you have to like mortgage your house and everything. Yeah, you know, okay. So we stand in that line. We go through that paperwork. And then, um, so it was just a, a whirlwind trying to figure out how to get it, what line you had to stand in. Yeah, I was a, uh, I had, was a nurse manager before I got pregnant and left. And so I was used to managing people and managing systems. And it's like, oh, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. Like, I have to get a binder. I've got to be organized. I got to write emails. I got to make phone calls and be persistent without being too aggressive. I ended up in due process, which is educational court, very early on, actually, when Lucas just turned three, um, because I didn't want him to go to a very, uh, I won't even call it subpar, a, a very bad program that was not going to do anything for him. Um, and so I ended up in due process for a year. And it was my first attorney who had a son, an adult son with autism, who suggested that I look into becoming a behavior analyst. And I was like, what? What's that? You know? And he's like, well, you... Yeah, I was just like, okay, what is it? And it was a new certification at the time. And and he said, well, you already have a because I had literally just testified at Lucas's due process case. Like a lot of people say they file for due process. Like I actually went like <laughs> like all the way till the conclusion, all the way to filing in federal court. I mean, it was unbelievable. And um he said that it was a new certification. And since I had my master's degree in nursing, which at the time was okay. And since I, you know, was training the preschool and I founded, I was the founding president of the autism society in my County and everything. He's like, you could, you know, you could do this uh, distance learning and everything. So, um, about a year later, I started pursuing that. And then I became certified in, um, 2003. When you as a parent first learned about ABA, what was your initial reaction to it? Did you like it? I liked it because, you know, like I said, I had no idea how to teach Lucas language. He had a few words, but I didn't know, you know, what the control was or anything like that. And um, because I was a nurse manager and I worked, I worked at uh, Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia as a nurse manager, uh, prior to that, I worked at McGee Rehab Hospital with um, a multidisciplinary teams. I worked with spinal cord injured patients and I worked with head injured patients. And even before that, when I was a staff nurse, I worked at the University of Penn Hospital and I worked with mostly neurologically impaired patients and stroke patients. And so my whole life as a nurse um, and a nurse manager was all working with neurologically impaired people. And so the, and, and then when I was a nurse manager and pursuing my master's degree in nursing administration, 
I was always like, I was always a behavior analyst, but I didn't even know what that was. Or I, you know, yeah. So I was just naturally drawn to, um, I, I published in the nursing field. I published things like, uh, nursing retention, preventing the domino effect. I published on, um, time management. And the biggest thing I did was I studied and I, I did a whole revamp of shift to shift report. So when the seven to three shift and the three to 11 shift, when they change shifts, there's a report system in place. And at the time it was very antiquated and, and resulting in overtime and patient falls and everything because the nurses would get together in a conference room for like a half an hour and they, it was like a bad game of pass down the alley. And so I revamped that whole system um, for Jefferson Hospital. And so that's all what we call, you know, OBM. And and um, so so the whole ABA, when when um, we had a Lovas replication site consultant come, who was our first consultant, and it was just great, like data, awesome, um, you know, the the focus on the discrete trials and reinforcement. And I liked it. And my first um, consultant was like, you need to get a babysitter for Spencer and you need to book therapy and where you're actually going down in the basement and doing therapy for three to five hours a week. I find that to be the best thing. So I became basically the lead therapist. And then I would gather all the data and I would send it to her and then she'd come. She'd only come like once a month. And then my husband said, well, we pay her like, I don't know what we were paying her, $1,000. We pay her $1,000 to come once a month. And then you run around for the next 12 hours and gather things and, you know, and gather things before she comes. And, And pretty soon after, like maybe a year into it or six months into it, my consultant was leave, was leaving. She was moving. And so she wasn't going to be able to consult anymore. And at that time I was like, Oh my God, this is pretty scary. Like now I know more than most people in the whole world about autism. Like this is frightening. (laughs) And so, yeah, it, it was, I, I always loved ABA and I realized that I was actually practicing ABA a lot and didn't even know it. There are a lot of people that once they learn about ABA are like, oh my gosh, this is how my brain works or this is how I was already thinking about things. So getting the data that goes behind it and the evidence-based practices that are behind these strategies really helps it all come together. Yeah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So you mentioned using a LOVAS style approach. For those that are new to ABA, can you explain what that means? And can you also explain what the program looked like for your son when you first started ABA with him? Right. So in 1987, Dr. Ivar LOVAS um, from UCLA published a study um, taking 59 kids with autism and uh, 19 of them got very intensive ABA treatment um, 40 hours a week of one-to-one ABA treatment. 
Um, 20 of them got uh, 10 hours of intensive one-to-one therapy and whatever was available in the time in California, like an eclectic approach, other hours. And then the third uh, control group got uh, 20 kids. They just got whatever was available in California. And what, what Lobos showed in his study um, was that the kids in the experimental group that were uh, given 40 hours of one-to-one intensive ABA treatment um, became indistinguishable from their peers by first grade and went on to be studied um, at the age of 13, I believe, and they were still indistinguishable. They didn't need um, IEPs or, or those sorts of things. So that study was... Um, kind of hidden in the library until uh, Catherine Maurice, uh, who was the mom of two kids with autism eventually, she found the study because she had a PhD and she went to the library to do research and she found the LOVA study and wrote about it in her book called Let Me Hear Your Voice. And so back in the 90s when Lucas was diagnosed, everybody that was quote unquote doing ABA was doing a LOVAS approach. And that involved um, a lot of uh, focus on receptive abilities, sitting behavior, um, discrete trials, a certain prompting system, which was no, no prompt. So if you'd say touch your nose and Lucas would, wouldn't, he'd touch something else or he wouldn't respond. You would say, no, touch your nose. So that's no. And then you say no twice. And then you would give the prompt. And you would work on touch your nose, for instance, like 10 times in a row. Um, and, um, you know, it, it worked. I mean, his. It, it, but the thing is, he was talking a little bit. So there wasn't really a there wasn't any focus on teaching him to talk more for those first six months. It was like basically just getting his receptive better, getting his imitation better, getting his um, sitting behavior better. And um, anyway, so it, it was it was those kind of programs that and then we would take data. We would say, OK, the touch body part program, he mastered nose. Now we're on to eyes or whatever for the next month or I don't even think we picked multiple targets per program. I mean, I can't remember. Yeah. It was very different. And and after each trial, we do 10 times in a row, we would actually take data on every single trial. Um, though we call that trial by trial data. So the LOVAS type of ABA treatment is is was validated back in 1987. And it, it, there's many replication, like I had a replication site um, so it was very, um, you got done this program and you went to the next program, but you as a parent didn't really know where the next program was going to take you. Cause it was kind of secret. It's kind of like a secret recipe. Um, and, uh, so it was, it was, um, it was, that's basically, I, I don't know if you want to add anything. That's a great explanation. And I'd love to put that in the context of your book, The Verbal Behavior Approach, because this style is different than this LOVAS style method that you just explained. And this LOVAS style method is what many of us might think of as that quote unquote traditional ABA. So can you explain a little bit how the verbal behavior approach that you talk about in your book is different than this traditional ABA model? Right. So, you know, I used 
the Let Me Hear Your Voice book, you know, as my Bible. And one of Catherine Maurice's children, the boy who was diagnosed second, um, he screamed for like six weeks when they started therapy. Like they, you know, called him to the table and he screamed for six weeks. And when we started the Lovas type therapy, um, Lucas, Lucas cried for like 20 minutes. She basically had us, me and my husband sit upstairs and watch on the monitor and he cried for 20 minutes and then that was it. And, and we went back down and therapy, you know, started basically. But, um, when my, when my consultant who wasn't a BCBA, I mean, there was no BCBAs back in 1999. Um, she was moving South and, so I was going to have to switch to a different consultant. At the same time, my friend, uh, my first and best autism friend, mom, she flew down to Florida to hear Dr. Vincent Carnabone speak. And he was speaking about the ABLES with the assessment of basic language and learning skills. And he was showing videos. And Carol and I um, shared some therapists between us. And she came back and she's like, Mary, we got to switch. And she like came over to my house and showed me what she learned. And, um, and so we, we switched to a consultant at the time. There was really no verbal behavior consultants, but I got the ables and I marked up my little boxes. I'm sure it was way overscored as many of the ables and BB maps are, especially when they're done by the parent who really wants to like make as much progress as possible. And um, so we got a, a verbal behavior consultant um, by Rutgers um, and that was ultimately run by Mary Jane Weiss. Although we never met Mary Jane Weiss. Um, well, actually I know, Dr. Mary Jane Weiss well now. She um, ended up being on my dissertation committee, um, which was awesome. But anyway, she was running the program, but we had this guy that came that, you know, wasn't a behavior analyst. And I was used to like a low blast replication site. I was used to like very sharp person, very data and this and that. So it was kind of the wild west of the verbal behavior approach. <laughs> at the time. Um, but, you know, Lucas continued to make progress. And and because of all the Lovas background for a year or year and a half prior, you know, his receptive abilities and imitation abilities, sitting abilities, compliance, everything was really good. Um, and then in 2003, when I was just about ready to sit for my BCBA, um, I was approached and I was always a big advocate for Lucas and he was, he was going to be moving into kindergarten soon. So I was like, how is this going to work? You know? Um, and I was approached by people from the Pennsylvania verbal behavior project grant. And they said, you're being considered for a position. And I'm like a position, like what position? And I didn't really apply for anything. And, and it ended up to be a consultant with the, with a statewide grant, um, in Pennsylvania, implementing verbal behavior it was called the verbal behavior project, uh, implementing the ABLES, uh, across classrooms in Pennsylvania. And so then I got there and I'm like, okay, now I know how to do this. 
Uh, now I know how to help teachers and speech therapists and paraprofessionals and school bus drivers implement ABA in schools. And um, I was there for seven years um, from 2003 to 2010 as the lead behavior analyst for the Pennsylvania Verbal Behavior Project, which is now going strong, but it's it's renamed the Patent Autism ABA Supports Initiative. But back then, um, in like 2004 and five and six, I was still, I was working with the VB project as a contractor, but I was still heavily involved with advocacy and, um, I was getting trained on the stat uh, screening tool for autism in two year olds and the ADOS, the autism diagnostic. So my, my nursing background and my, you know, I, I was just always interested in like the next, like, how can we get people to have earlier diagnosis and help parents? And anyway, to make a long story short, some woman came over to do some stat um, videos of her son who was two. And she, you know, she just was hungry. Like, you know, we all were for the information. And I realized at that moment that, you know, all the information that I knew was in my head and, um, it wasn't in books. So yes, I would still recommend, let me hear your voice, but I would not never leave a kid cry even 20 minutes, let alone six weeks. Uh, I wouldn't focus heavily on receptive and imitation. I would focus on language. I would focus on manding. Um, and, so I realized that the book was in my head and I needed to write it. So that's when I wrote the verbal behavior approach, which is a very different style, but it's still under the umbrella of applied behavior analysis. I love the video that you shared on your Facebook page recently, where you talked about the difference between ABA and the verbal behavior approach. And you said that ABA is the umbrella and a verbal behavior approach lives within that umbrella. So it's a type of ABA. And I think the language component is something that really all parents and teachers can get on board with because we see that language need on a daily basis. And once you learn about how it affects all of these different areas, it can you, you really see the big importance of building up that skill set. So for someone that's never read your book, can you tell them what they expect, what they can expect to learn when reading the verbal behavior approach, whether this is a teacher or a parent? So I just did a video blog recently and, and like anything that we're talking about, if, if, uh, you, you just said like, um, what's the difference between Lovas and VB? Like if, if, if you have a listener out there, if, anything I'm saying, just Google Mary Barbera, you know, what's the difference between Lovas and VB? And you will get my stuff. Um, I just did this video blog, which was a speech therapy student. Um, it was, is dating my son's, um, friend and she came over and she's, she's a speech therapy student. She said, you know, um, Jack recommended your book and, um, I read it and I had to do a book report on it and I got two main things out of your book and like changed, you know, changed the way I was dealing with kids and everything. I'm like, oh, great. What are they? And so I put this in a video blog. So the one thing is eight positives to every negative. So we're always giving 
you know, we want to always give the kids and the teachers and the professionals we're working with eight positives to every negative because there's so much negativity in the world and we're going to get definitely farther if we're positive. And then the other thing is kind of my layman's terms that if you see problem behavior, the demands are too high, reinforcement's too low. And so I explained that my book is, is really my my parent and my behavior analyst perspective. Of course, I'm always a nurse too and all these and an advocate. So in the beginning and the end are more of my journey and my soapboxes and my my parent hat views. And then all throughout the middle is more of a step-by-step approach. Like how do you get a child to mand or request things? You know, it like take a cookie instead of giving them whole cookie and, and asking them to say cookie once. Break a cookie into 10 pieces. Then you have 10, 10 trials. Um, I also published an article with my BCBA mentor, Dr. Rick Cabina, in 2005. And that is on using transfer procedures. Uh, and I, my whole, my whole online courses and my book and everything I do is really um, using transfer procedures and um that I think is something that if you don't know what transfer procedures are, um, you need to learn because I, I remember working with a teacher once in, in the early days of the VV project and she'd been a special ed teacher for like 10 years and we were, I was teaching her how to do transfer procedures and how to take data according to, you know, cold probe data with very different data collection than traditional LOBAS approach. And, um, but when I taught her about transfer trials, and the kids started making lots of progress. She's like, looked at me and she said, you know, in 10 years, I don't even know how I used to teach kids anything without knowing what transfer procedures are. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to describe my, my whole, you know, way of doing things, but it is different. And it's even different than other people's verbal behavior approach styles because, because of my background and because of my work with hundreds of kids directly with the VB project and because of my work with Lucas, um, I just did a podcast that just came out recently um, on the 10 ways my my approach is different. Um, and that is at uh, marybarbera.com forward slash 15. Um, so all my podcasts are, are numbered like that. So, um, but again, just Google and you'll find any information, either bite-sized five-minute video blogs or 30-minute podcasts or articles. Um, I'm lots of stuff on the internet now. That's so great. I love that a lot of your videos and podcasts are actionable. They're things that a teacher or a parent can listen to and do tomorrow. The whole idea of eight positives to every negative is something that doesn't require much extra explanation. You can turn around and use this concept in your classroom tomorrow morning and see results right away. So your second takeaway, I love that one, and I want you to elaborate a little bit more on it. The second takeaway from your book is the demand being too high and the reinforcement being too low in a lot of situations where there's problem behaviors. And I love this simple explanation because you can apply it to everyday situations with all types of people. Right. And um, I think a lot of behavior analysts, they jump in. I did a video blog on this recently, 
is they jump in and they just want to, they want to do a functional behavior assessment or they want to do a functional analysis or whatever. And it's like, you know, the ratio of demands and reinforcement is not good. So uh, you can even apply this. Uh, let's not even talk about, uh, you know, autism. All right. You're working at Walmart or you're a manager at Walmart and somebody's complaining like the boxes are too heavy, you know, they don't like these shifts and they, you know, whatever. Um, the demands are too high. And then they complain about their pay and their, you know, recognition for doing a good job. That's the reinforcement's not right. So you just basically, to begin with, you just want to clear the slate and go like, if I gave you $1,000 for a child to have a good day, you would have to up the reinforcement, lower the demands, be the spoiling grandma, get the child in a good state. And then we slowly reduce the reinforcement and up the demands. But the child never knows that like we're done pairing or we're, you know, it should be a happy, um, a happy situation and as little stress as possible. Like, I don't like this whole, oh, I just had a 45 minute extinction burst. And, you know, it's like, well, what were, you know, this isn't a public school classroom. Like, first of all, the teacher doesn't have 45 minutes to have an, you know, an escape extinction uh, situation. What are you modeling? What's the child's VB map look like? You know, and uh, oh, I have no idea. Well, that's your mistake. Like, I don't like to get into quote unquote pissing matches with kids because, you know, nobody's learning during those times. I say in my, in my online course, like if I were learning to uh, pilot a plane and all the buttons and all the levers and I started to get really overwhelmed and started crying and I'm like crying to the point where I'm almost hyperventilating and you're trying to continue to teach me or reprimand me like I'm done I'm not learning anything and so like I think sometimes behavior analysts or teachers you know in an effort to like keep the demand on it's like what are we doing here yes absolutely I could not agree more I think honestly teachers get nervous we're like well it's day two we got a whole lot of IEP goals to get to we better get all this learning in when in reality no one is getting any work done during that 45-minute extinction burst. So if we could rewind and really work on building in communication, building up developing rapport, and being that, you know, that spoiling grandma like you talked about. The analogy that I always use that's really similar is to be a chocolate chip cookie because, I mean, who doesn't like a chocolate chip cookie, right? If you embrace everything that a chocolate chip cookie is, your kids are going to want to be there and want to be in your classroom. And then you slowly start fading those demands back in. And sometimes in January, you might have to go back to chocolate chip cookie mode or spoiling grandma mode, and that's all right. But we kind of get scared to do that and hold back a little bit. But we're not going to live there forever. It's just an option on how to intervene instead of always going to something more punitive or to something like extinction. Yeah. And that's just a simple way to think about applying that concept of the demand being too high and reinforcement being too low. Like I was just thinking in my own life, that is totally me and running. 
For me, running, the demand is too high and the reinforcement is too low. I don't get any immediate reinforcement out of running and it is a lot of effort for me. But if someone said, hey, I'm going to pay you 50 bucks every time you run a mile, all of a sudden the reinforcement is there and even though it's a high response effort, I'm still going to do it. So I really love how the way you phrase that helps put problem behaviors into perspective. So let's think about a classroom teacher who's maybe understaffed, their classroom is overcrowded. Can they pull strategies and utilize the concepts in your book in their classroom too? They can, um, but you. my book was published in 2007, so it is 12 years old. I wrote it in 2006, so it's really 13 years old. And a lot of times, even my clients that I've had in the past, you know, they've read my book, but you know, it's hard to take my book and go like, okay, you know, she talked about the count man procedure, but until you see that, and that's really why I developed my online courses, my online community and my free video blogs and my podcast, because I don't, I think my book, you know, has been great. It's translated into like 12 or 13 languages now. And, um, but I do think that, um, in order to really apply the information, you're going to need to see videos. And that's where, when I was working in the early intervention world, I had video permission and I have, um, thousands of videos actually of me demonstrating the techniques, uh, throughout my online courses. And so, um, I think, I think, yeah, you can get some tips and tricks, but I think like anything, you know, building a video room or, or starting a podcast or anything, it's not just about going and learning tips and tricks. It's about going and learning how to develop a system that is going to work and is going to scale. And I don't think that any little tidbits are going to be helpful in, in completely changing the way you you teach. Absolutely. It's so great to know that you have those real life examples included. I always say that like many of our learners, I am a very visual learner. I always want to see the video. I want to see the photo. I don't always necessarily want to just read about it. So it's great to know that those are included in your courses. So for a teacher, which one of the courses would you recommend that they start with? Um, so I have, I have three courses, but two of them are bundled together. So you basically have two options and one is the toddler preschooler course. And that is for early intervention professionals and parents of kids one to five years old who are, you know, have signs of autism or on wait list or have a diagnosis of autism. And then I have my verbal behavior bundle, which, um, my verbal behavior bundle includes uh, 32 type 2 BACBCEUs. So that's all the all the CEUs you'll need for two years. So that is very robust. It also has a video vault of 25 videos on topics such as how to teach early intraverbals, desensitizing to go to the doctor, dentist, that sort of thing. It has a bonus video on conditional discrimination. It has a bonus video on how to get a child to sleep or a bonus video on feeding issues. And I, um, so the verbal behavior bundle, definitely. Um, but anybody, uh, that's listening can always go to a free workshop to learn more about which course might be right for them at marybarbera.com forward slash workshop. Great. I will link all of those in the show notes as well.
you know, I think that so many teachers are really just hungry for more and want to learn about all of these strategies that you've been talking about. So if some of the things that Mary has been talking about in this episode is intriguing to you, you should definitely check out her courses. And I think having the opportunity to really see it in person and see it in action within her courses is just beyond valuable. I want to throw back really quick to one thing you said about the ABLES. I absolutely love using the ABLES and I talk about it a lot on my website. And I really had that same moment you did when you first discovered the ABLES. Like it all came together and, you know, finally having this path and direction felt so great. And I know there are so many teachers listening that use the ABLES or use the VB map in their classrooms. So I think that your courses will really align to things that they're already doing. And then when Mark Sundberg, Mark Sundberg was really involved with um, the VB project and he did the forward for my book um, and he created the VB map assessment. So in 2006, we started field testing the VB map and we uh, moved away from the ABLES to the VB map. So I, with my courses, not my toddler course, I I do like a, a mini assessment there. Um, but my, my, uh, verbal behavior bundle is all based on the ABLES and it's for kids. doesn't matter the age, as long as their ability level is within the BB map. So, uh, yeah, so I talk about that a ton. Awesome. Well, everyone definitely has to go check out everything that Mary has to offer from her video blogs to her courses to her podcast. Mary is truly a wealth of information and I can't wait for you all to learn more from her. So Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast and um, I can't wait to see where you end up in a few years. You're, you're very gung-ho and I'm excited to watch you grow. Thanks so much. If you want to learn more, I would definitely recommend heading over to Mary's website, marybarbera.com, to learn about the different online courses she offers and check out some of her great video blogs. She is a great resource if you want to learn more about applied behavior analysis and the verbal behavior approach. Did you know that two out of three teachers turn to Teachers Pay Teachers for educational resources? As a seller on TPT, this makes me so excited. I love seeing educators turn to other educators for support in their classrooms. There are so many great resources on Teachers Pay Teachers, and this could be made even better if we could involve school budgets in this process. Enter TPT for Schools. TPT for Schools makes it easy for administrators and teachers to collaborate when making curricular decisions. TPT helps you set up a way of using school funds for these resources. This is a new program and there's already over 5,000 schools registered. In the special ed world, this is even more important because we don't have that many resources and the resources that are provided for us might not be so appropriate for our class. To learn more about TPT for Schools, visit schools.teacherspayteachers.com. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. 
You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.